Hello, and welcome to Exploring Global Problems, a podcast where we talk to academics from Swansea University whose groundbreaking research is tackling global challenges from health innovation to sustainable futures and the environment, from digital technologies to clean energy. My name is Sam Blacksland, and today I'm joined by Dr. Nigel Pollard, an archaeologist from Swansea University's Department of Classics, Ancient History and Egyptology. His research into the damage and protection of heritage sites in the Second World War has enabled Nigel to apply the lessons learned then to modern conflict zones around the world. This includes protecting archaeological locations, historical buildings and museums, and he's worked in Egypt, Tunisia and Syria. Nigel, welcome to Exploring Global Problems. It's good to see you. Thank you. Uh, Could you just start by giving us an overview of what your research is about? Fundamentally, I'm interested in protecting heritage sites and conflict zones. So the kind of things that I mean are historical buildings, archaeological sites, museums, and also the contents of those museums and galleries and archives and things like that. Um, It's a recurring problem. It's one that was um, an issue in the Second World War. And what I do is research attempts to protect heritage in the Second World War and try to apply the lessons that were learned back then and in many cases forgotten to modern situations, places like Syria uh, during the Civil War or Mali uh, or the Iraq War uh, and so on. Because many of the, the problems that were encountered in the Second World War uh, are the same problems that are being encountered again and again across the world. And I'm really looking forward to exploring all of that. But in terms of you, where did this all start? I mean, what's your background? I started out um, studying classics at university. But even before I went to university, I worked on archaeological sites as a volunteer uh, and and learned archaeological techniques and things like that. So archaeology was always a really important part of what I studied in university. And then While I was at university, I would go off and work on archaeological excavations in places like Tunisia and Italy, all of which have had heritage that have been damaged in conflicts over the the decades uh, from the Second World War to the the recent um, past. Um, I did a PhD in classical archaeology, did fieldwork in places like Egypt and Syria uh, and so on, got my job in Swansea University ultimately. Um, I used to publish really on archaeology in a a more traditional sense, but a few years ago I changed direction into this um, issue of protecting heritage in conflict zones. And why that change? Well, I I was working in, I mentioned some of the places I've worked in, and and, um, it, it started really in Italy taking students around archaeological sites there and actually seeing that the the physical evidence for damage in the Second World War, that got me interested in that aspect of it. But unfortunately, sadly, as as I I got more into that historical aspect of it, places where I'd done field work were becoming victim to that kind of damage in uh, the present day, places like Syria, uh, for example, but also internal unrest in places like Egypt and Tunisia. So I got sucked into it sort of through the archaeology, into the Second World War history, and then into the, the present day. You mentioned a couple of times, just in general, damage. When we talk about damage to heritage sites, I mean, I assume this isn't going to be a straightforward answer and mm. there's no one single thing here, but what are the most common ways in which these sites are damaged? Yeah. There's a series of of recurring factors, and again, this is one of the links between the Second World War and the modern period, that actually the things that that cause the damage tend to be the same. Um, So, for example, there's there's deliberate ideological damage, the kind of thing that we might be familiar with from the Syrian civil war, where Daesh, or ISIS, the Islamic State, deliberately destroyed some Roman period temples in Palmyra, destroyed shrines and religious places connected with um, Shia Islam and the Yazidi peoples and and things like that, where they're actually targeting the stuff deliberately because they've got some ideological reason to doing it. That didn't happen very much in the Second World War. Uh, The Germans burned the... um, the Neapolitan State Archives, um, uh, which had been evacuated to a place called Nola, 
but they did that largely as a sort of revenge for one of their own soldiers being killed rather than because they had a, an ideological motivation for it. But deliberate damage is one thing. Obviously, things get damaged accidentally in, in combat as well. Yes. And in the Second World War, bombing was one of the main factors there. And one of the focal points of my historical research is actually the fact that the archaeological site of Pompeii was bombed uh, accidentally because the Allies were trying to hit targets near the site. But again, that sort of incidental damage happens in combat. It's true in Syria as well. The, the Roman site of Apamea was damaged because there was fighting going on in and around it. Nobody was trying to damage it deliberately, uh, but it happened. Security issues are another major thing because often, obviously, in, in wartime, uh, security forces have got other preoccupations. So museums don't get guarded um, the Iraq mu Museum in Baghdad, for example, is a famous recent example of that. The Americans didn't secure it after the invasion of Iraq, and it was looted. Archaeological sites that are in security vacuums aren't being guarded properly. Their regular peacetime custodians are off doing other things. Um, you know, Local people dig holes in those sites, pick things up, sell them on the antiquities market and so on. So there are a range of different factors like that. What about natural disasters, or does that not apply necessarily in the places that you work? Are any of these places destroyed because of um, yeah, natural factors? Yeah, certainly. And, and I mean, that's not really something I, I work on mm. so much, but certainly things like earthquake damage um, was a factor in the damage to say many of the, the other Roman archaeological sites in Syria across the centuries. Um, the, yeah, obviously the, the Pompeii, since we mentioned yes. it already and <laughs> yes. there's a little matter of a volcano there. Um, but, and, and, and those are interesting issues, um, too. I, I'm not too heavily involved in that, although the, the organization that I, I, I work for, um, uh, Blue Shield, uh, which is sort of red, equivalent of the Red Cross, but for heritage sites, uh, does actually have within its remit now looking at natural disasters and, and their impact on heritage. And that's a, a factor in many other part, parts of the world. It may be the primary factor, in fact. So in, in the Pacific Islands, uh, in Australia, things like uh, bushfires and things like um, global warming and changing sea levels are the main issues. In Europe, Often conflict, war are more obvious and immediate issues than the, the natural disasters. You've talked about Italy, you've said Egypt, Tunisia, Syria, in terms of places you've worked in. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, where specifically has your research taken you? Uh, well, it's, it's taken, in the first instance, it took me to Bedfordshire, which was <laughs> a, the, the first excavation I worked on. But since then, I, I've done a sort of big loop around the world. So um, I, I did my undergraduate degree in the UK, for example, but I did my, my PhD in the US. And from the US, I, I started working on many of those field projects, particularly Egypt. I worked there in, in um a place called Kift, ancient Koptos in Upper Egypt near Luxor. Uh, I, uh, I worked out in the immediately before I came to Swansea and overlapping with my time in Swansea. I, I worked at a, a site called Androna uh, out in the desert of Syria between Palmyra and the modern town of Hamar. Um, as you mentioned, Tunisia, Italy, um, those sorts of places. But also places closer to home. I, I was a local government archaeologist at Gloucester for a while, for example. If you'd like to visit us and find out more about studying at Swansea University, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash open days to book your place. Is there any particular reason, apart from the obvious ones, of course, the rich history, the rich heritage of places like mm. Egypt and Tunisia, is there anything that's drawn you to a particular place for a particular reason? Ah, oh, I I think that there are um, one of the the places that I I was most excited to visit, and certainly has been um, one of the the places that's been quite heavily damaged by the Syrian civil war is a, uh, a 
a Greek and Roman period settlement on the Euphrates called Dura Europus, which is in the middle of nowhere near the Syrian-Iraqi border um, uh, in modern terms. And in the ancient world, it was this sort of nexus of, of different cultures. It was on the border of the Persian empires, the Roman empire. It was a colony founded by Macedonian colonists. It came under the control of the Parthian Persian dynasty for a while. And, and there was a really rich range of evidence from that site, including um, perishable things that we don't normally get preserved on archaeological sites in Britain, for example, things like papyrus documents and things made of wood and stuff like that because it's in an arid area um, in the desert overlooking the Euphrates River. And, and I worked on, on evidence from that site for my PhD, looking at the interaction between the Roman army and the local populations, uh, their cultural interaction, those sorts of things, trade. And, and then finally, in the late 90s, I went to visit that site. And I was about the only person there in this wonderful remote location that meant so much to me from my work. Uh, but very sadly, um, satellite photographs have been published in over the last few years showing that the site of Dura Europus now is pockmarked with looters' holes because it, it was in an area... Uh, a disputed area in the Syrian civil war in Deir Ezzur province, um, down by the Iraqi border. It was under Daesh control. Uh, there are arguments over whether Daesh actually um, organized looting of sites under its control or whether it just sort of taxed them in a, a rather laissez-faire way. But and, and um, whether or not it was deliberate policy, but certainly that site one of the most memorable ones to me from my uh, academic uh, story, uh, sadly, has been quite severely damaged. Well, this is leading on to something I was going to ask, which is that in the popular imagination, if we think in, in the recent context, at least about Syria uh, in particular, but also other places that you work, these are now potentially dangerous places. Mm. Have you ever been near any, any trouble or danger when you've been out there? Not really, no. I think most of the, the danger that I've encountered in working in remote places has been th rather mundane things like the risk of traffic accidents and things like that. And I know people have been injured in those sort of situations. But no, I, 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 uh, there's, there would be no point in me with my skill set putting myself in a, a, a conflict zone. Uh, and frankly, when the damage is being done or when it has been done, that's on in, on some level a sign that I failed. The the what we need to do is actually to to prepare in advance and to develop policies and practices that, in the first instance, stop that damage being done. Um, things like the deliberate ideological damage by Daesh and stuff like that. It's very difficult to stop. Um, I don't think any country would rightly. Send its it sort of interpose its armed forces um, to between Daesh and an archaeological site to stop it being damaged, and I'm certainly not going to to do that kind of thing. Um, so if somebody wants to to damage heritage, then they're probably going to go ahead and do it, and the best you can do is try and repair it and fix it afterwards. But actually, it's stuff like the accidental damage the damage that's done through ignorance of military personnel not knowing where something is, all that kind of preparation and education and things you can do in advance that are key, not being there standing in front of a, a tank or something like that. I'm not going to do that. Okay. Can we just unpick exactly what you mean by ideological damage as well? Why would somebody ideologically or politically go and ruin something well the 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 justification for daesh for example attacking um ancient shrines in the near east is is often said to be religious and they cite some aspects of uh, some um islamic texts as a a pretext for doing that but often the ideological damage is is mostly done to attack symbols of a particular people or a particular group um, it's it's common in cases of of um, genocide, for example, and attempts to uh, engage in ethnic cleansing. And I, it was a, a 
factor in the Balkan Wars in the 1990s, for example, in the former Yugoslavia, uh, where uh, when Serbs would attack um, Kosovo mosques and uh, Kosovo guerrillas would damage and attack um, uh, Serbian Orthodox churches and monasteries because they were symbols and sort of rallying points, focal points for the communities who lived around them. By attacking that central symbol, uh, you attack that group. You make that group feel threatened. You might make them move out of the area. You might make it difficult for them to cohere as a community. So, you know, that's what deliberate ideological damage is mostly about. It's about attacking people through their heritage. And we will come on to discuss your role then in in that process. Obviously, not as the the, the person doing any damage no. or attacking things, but where where you can play a part in ameliorating this or, or helping things. Mm. But something I think that struck me with what you've said so far is your uh, reference to the Second World War, mm. because you're an archaeologist, but actually you're yeah. also a historian, really, aren't you? Yeah. Tell me about those parallels between World War II and the kind of archaeological work that you do. Well, the um, I, you're right to say that I'm I'm really a historian now, and I'm very much what I do is actually looking at documents and aerial photographs and things related to the Second World War. Um, the whole project was inspired by the fact that I'd seen those signs of damage on monuments in Italy, and those were from the Second World War. I've worked in places like Pompeii that were damaged in the Second World War. So uh, that's essentially what I do now. I work on those archives and try and apply those lessons uh, to the, the modern situation. Uh, I, most recent work I've been doing is on a, a, a book which is called Bombing Pompeii, uh, World Heritage and Military Necessity. And in that book, I examine... Uh, why ancient Pompeii got damaged, and uh, I set it in the military context, in the context of heritage protection in the Second World War. Basically, in the Second World War, all the combatants, it's true of Britain, it's true of Italy, France, Germany, for example, took measures to protect their own heritage. Uh, so museum collections were evacuated when that was possible. So the Collections from the National Gallery in London were ultimately moved to refuges in the slate quarries at Manod in North Wales. Uh, the Italians did equivalent things to their collection. Things that couldn't be moved, like buildings, were often protected with scaffolding and sandbags and things like that. Uh, some of those measures were more successful than others. Uh, those sorts of things, uh, uh, those sorts of issues are, uh, are still there. How do you effectively protect, say, an archaeological site with mosaics from conflict? You know, what particular types of, of um, covering do you use? There are some real, really specific lessons that can be drawn from the Second World War uh, to, to those sorts of modern situations. Uh, also in the Second World War, the Allies set up a unit that was specifically uh, there to try to preserve heritage in um, in countries that were being fought over, whether they were places like Italy, which at that time was um, a, 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 um, a, um, co-belligerent with the Allies, or whether it was enemy countries like Germany. And um, that was the Monuments, Fine Arts and Archives Subcommission, which is, of course, made famous now by the George Clooney film Monuments Men. That's based on a, a real unit, although um, the film plays rather fast and loose with the, the history, as you might expect to make it work as a, a film. That unit was made up of military officers from the US and from Britain who typically had civilian backgrounds that were relevant to heritage protection, so it included archaeologists and architectural conservators and museum directors and people like that who would go in and um, engage with the armed forces to try and, and prevent damage to heritage sites in the first instance and then sometimes to engage in first aid to those heritage sites uh, after um, they'd been damaged. And the kinds of things they did, the kinds of reports they wrote about their activities there are really valuable uh, to me when I go and talk in front of modern military audiences 
The problems are pretty much the same. Some of the technologies changed. Bombing can be more accurate, for example, because of, of things like laser-guided weapons. Sure. Um, but accidental damage still happens. Um, you know, th those, those lessons from those old documents in the National Archive in Kew uh, have a modern application, which is really exciting to me. And do you think we draw those parallels and we learn those lessons enough, or is that part of your argument that we don't? It's absolutely the, the, the argument that we don't learn those lessons. Much of that, there was this vast and exciting body of, of material that these guys produced in the Second World War. Uh, and if you read their reports from the end of the Second World War, they're, they're sort of looking forward to having permanent training for specialists within the armies um, that were to come. But actually, those lessons were pretty much completely forgotten until the 1990s when some people started to write about them. Uh, but really right through, um, many of those lessons were demonstrably absent, for example, from the coalition invasion of Iraq. Uh, we really need to relearn those lessons. And, and that's really what I'm trying to do to make people aware of that and present those lessons in a form that they can use. And I do want to discuss your, your cooperation with military organizations and, and the military. But again, just thinking about, you know, your, your shift almost from archaeologist to historian, mm. you know, your, your background is in one thing, but you've spent quite a lot of time dealing with now 20th century modern history mm. documents. What was that like? Um, it, it was an exciting change. I mean, I, I felt like that the work I was doing before um, had sort of reached a, a point where I, w I was feeling a bit stale with it. I mean, I was was doing stuff connected with Roman Syria. I'd written stuff on the Roman army, particularly its relations with civilian population I mentioned uh, across the empire, but mostly in Syria. Um, but I, I felt like I'd, I'd said all I needed to say about that. I'd always had a, a, an interest in the history of the Second World War, and particularly in Italy, because I'd spent so much time in, in Italy over the, the last decades um and and actually bringing the two together the archaeology and that second world war italy thing um it, it turned out to be a really exciting combination i mean i feel like it sort of refreshed my my research and and the the contemporary relevance of it is really exciting to me as well so it's it's i i feel it's been a really good change of direction for me i'm very very motivated every morning to to do to come in and work on it some more. If you'd like to find out more about our research at Swansea University, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash research. What are the challenges though? There must be some significant challenges, not just methodological, not just about mm. now being a modern historian, but with the whole idea and the whole sense of your project and yeah. what you do? Well, uh, th I mean, there are, as you say, there are some methodological challenges and, and actually le you know, learning to use the, the National Archives collection in queue and to deal with a new kind of documentation, uh, to read wartime aerial photographs, those kinds of things were, were challenges. But I had some general familiarity with that sort of stuff before and actually finding the the range of evidence available and, and the sheer amount of evidence available compared to antiquity sometimes. Um, and one thing I tell students that one of the good things about the um about Roman history is that they can grasp pretty much all the evidence for uh the um the reign of an emperor like Nero themselves. But when when you're actually trying to do something original, it's better to have more evidence. We have that for the Second World War. So that's good in that respect, but other challenges, mostly in terms of the of applying the research rather than the historical research. So uh, sometimes the people I I engage with, military personnel uh, and um, representatives of government, are a bit resistant to the idea of protecting heritage for one, and also the idea that history actually conveys useful lessons to them actually that uh, after some initial skepticism 
that's not with with the military people at least that's not quite such a, a problem as you might think because they often get very uh enthused and excited about it uh, partly because they view protecting heritage as something that that can help them in practical terms on the ground because it wins over hearts and minds of local people but also because they are actually interested in the history and they're interested in the um that the, the, the British Army is developing a, a, the British Armed Forces in general developing a new cultural protection unit and what and I'm involved in their training and one of the things I'm doing is actually telling them about the the lineage of their unit the the, the past of because they've got their roots in the Second World War monuments archives um, subcommission uh, so they're interested they're excited to know about that unit Actually, resistance by academics is another factor. Um, doesn't necessarily spring to mind immediately, but actually, um, a number of academics are quite reluctant to engage with with armed forces in particular. Uh, Why do you think that is? Well, I mean, I suppose in in some respects there are. I mean, there are political differences. There are differences that go back to sort of cultural wars in the 1960s and and splits between academia I mean in the second world war academics were were very much on board with the um the war effort for the most part there was a an identifiable common enemy that many of them agreed was a con- common enemy but I think that the nature of wars over the last few decades that can be viewed as as perhaps sort of neo-colonial enterprises as Put many academics off engaging with, with armed forces. Uh, other academics have got um, view, uh, make it, think it's sort of not their responsibility to do this kind of thing. So, when it comes, for example, to producing lists of heritage sites that should be protected in an, an area of the world that uh, Allied armed forces might be deployed in um somebody might turn around and say well actually you know everything needs to be protected the whole of that country we can't possibly prioritize um one piece of heritage over another there are all sorts of of sort of you know academic problems as well as the the sort of political reluctance and things like that and like you've hinted at if you can tell an army that not to drive their tank you know over a over a specific area in a graveyard or something mm. which they might not necessarily see no. it's not just about helping the army it's about helping the local people and the local population i would guess well exactly and i mean there are pragmatic reasons from the perspective of the armed forces not to do things like that because it makes their mission more difficult but also there are humanitarian reasons for protecting these sites um the talked about how heritage sites and and cultural property in general not just fancy historical buildings but things like community centers and pubs and places of worship that may be in modern buildings all serve as sort of focal points for communities and being aware of of their importance to communities and preserving them is a part of the sort of humanitarian relief and protection that also extends to things like providing shelter to people who have been made homeless by war, feeding people who don't have access to regular food supplies. There are a good humanitarian reasons for protecting heritage, um, as well as the pragmatic military reasons for doing it. So just sort of washing your hands of it and saying, well, I, I don't want to get involved with this at all because it's sort of justifying war is... Um, I mean, it's not, that's not a, a line of moral argument that I would take myself, although I appreciate other people do. And which yeah. forces have you worked with in particular? The You said the UK forces, I think. Yeah, I, I, much of what I do nowadays is um, with the, the UK government and armed forces. Uh, so, for example, I mentioned the, the fact that the, the British armed forces are now um, establishing a, a, a small cultural protection unit of reservist officers um, with those specific duties in mind, again, often with coming from civilian backgrounds like archaeology 
uh, and so on. Uh, I've been involved in the working group that's that set up that unit, and I'm involved in the the, the training of that unit coming up later um, in um, this year. In fact, um, I, I've but I, I've been involved in in NATO workshops as well, engaging with. Uh, people from a range of different NATO and, and partners for peace countries like the Austrian armed forces, German armed forces. I have a lot of contact in the US armed forces as well, for example, and I've done things in those contexts. So um, armed forces, also governments, mostly British government departments, Ministry of Defense, obviously, but um, digital culture, uh, media and sport have a a remit to look after culture. So I've been involved in consultations there um, and NGOs too. And what does that practically involve? I've got images of you almost standing on a tank, you know, giving lectures to service personnel. I'm, it's probably not quite like that. But when you say you run workshops for people, mm. you know, where, how, when? Well, a, a, a lot of the stuff I do is to give presentations to audiences about the the um, historical lessons that I mean I've done things for example at the, the staff training college at, at Shrivenham um, in um, uh, near Swindon which is um, where the the UK Defense Academy is based and there um, I almost do stand on a tank and talk to people because one mm -hmm. of the presentations I gave was in a hall where there were they had a collection of armored <laughs> vehicles yeah um, and and I work in conjunction with colleagues from UK Blue Shield the 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 Red Cross of Heritage, uh, who who talk about more modern and more practical aspects of of present of of uh, preservation of of, our, of heritage sites, but mostly what I do is to talk about the history and I use case studies, illustrated examples of what was done in the Second World War, whether it was successful or not, to address some of those issues, like you know looting. Uh, accidental damage and things like that. Um, when people hear about your research, they might think on a surface level that you're involved with or you're interested in protecting, preserving buildings in mm. conflict areas, which obviously is is the case. But they might say, are you prioritising these buildings over people? Mm. But I guess it's probably not a case of one or the other. Yeah, and 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 that's a, an argument that's regularly made, and and obviously, protecting people in a, a, a an immediate physical sense is a key priority. But actually, there's no tension between protecting heritage and people for exactly the reasons that we've talked about. That yeah. heritage sites and and heritage in a broader sense, not just fancy historical buildings. But also places of modern places of worship, for example, things that serve as the focal points of communities, are re really sort of form the glue of those communities. And when those buildings, uh, whatever they are, are, are damaged or destroyed, either deliberately or in the course of a conflict, uh, it can be really difficult for that community to re-coalesce. But if those buildings those centers can be protected or can be reconstructed, then it, it provides a focal point for recreating a community that might have been broken apart by conflict and, and, um, and damage. So uh, there, there, are, there are other arguments for protecting heritage, that the idea that, um, you know, first of all, aesthetic arguments that this mm -hmm. thing is beautiful and, and deserves to be preserved which is a reasonable um, and, argument. And is a, a fair enough. Yeah, it's a reasonable argument. That's a traditional one. That was the one used mostly in the Second World War. Uh, the thing, the idea that these things are, are pieces of history that have come down to us and deserve to be left to our uh, descendants is another very good argument and a traditional one. But there are also those more immediate arguments like protecting heritage is, is actually part of humanitarian relief and protection and also from the perspective of armed forces again that, that it's a pragmatic thing so aside from the psychological aspects and the and the and what these places mean to communities there must also be an economic motive here as well especially if something a particularly grand heritage site is a is a tourist attraction for example 
then it is a linchpin of a yeah. local economy, I would, I would think. Yeah. yeah, that's absolutely the case. And um, I mean, two of the sites I've, I've been involved in, in one level or, or another, illustrate that really well from the, the historical perspective and the modern perspective. So Pompeii, um, as, uh, since its excavation in the 18th century, has always been a major tourist draw. That brings people into the area. They pay entrance fees that help to maintain the site. But the site employs local people, uh, so it brings wages into the local economy. There's an infrastructure, hotels and restaurants that support that. One of the things that the Allies did after Pompeii was, was liberated in the Second World War was to ensure that service personnel who visited the site, and they did in very large numbers because Naples was a big base area and leave destination, actually paid the entrance fee. They didn't have to, and the Italian uh, authorities actually said soldiers could go in free because Italian soldiers were allowed to go in free if they were in uniform. So they extended that privilege to um, to Allied soldiers as well. But actually, one of the uh, Allied monuments officers said, no, actually, our men will pay the entrance fee. And so the, the income that that brought in was used to help do repairs to the damage that had been done by the Allied bombing, but also paid the custodians who worked on the site, brought wages to their families, enabled them to live, um, brought money into the local economy. Same thing's true of Palmyra in Syria, which was several of, of, of the Roman period dam buildings um, there were, were damaged or destroyed by Daesh. And um, one of the, the leading figures, figures in local archaeology that was actually executed by Daesh. But that's a relatively remote oasis site, but it was probably the main tourist attraction in Syria before the civil war broke out. Again, there's an infrastructure of hotels and restaurants that are based on uh, people visiting that site. Uh, people work there as custodians. Um, that, that brings in large amounts of money to local community, to Syria in general before the civil war when the site was still visitable. But also because e even though the people who work on those sites don't necessarily have any strong um, connection in terms of their culture, I don't know that the people who live around Palmyra feel any particular kinship with the ancient Palmyrenes. The, the fact that they work on the site, there's a tradition of working on the site often through generations, actually means they identify with the site on some level beyond the economic. Same in Pompeii, there you know, multiple generations of some families have worked on the site as custodians and, and, and things like that. And they look to that site as a sort of focal point of their lives. After the war, how long did it take for Pompeii to, as it were, get back to normal? Well, relatively quickly. Um, I mean, there's a, a great anecdote in in um, the comedian Spike Milligan's wartime um, uh, memoirs. He wrote a really good series of, of wars about his uh, of memoirs about his war experience in Italy. He visited Pompeii um, and 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 actually reflects on what it was like in a really nice way. But he says, you know, and this is quite, I think, late 1943, early 1944, just a few months after the bombing had taken place in September 1943. Milligan is saying, oh, but, you know, they're, they're, they're going about reconstructing and rebuilding uh, already, uh, and, you know, the damage is actually not, not very visible. And, and there are some sort of moral and aesthetic questions involved in there. I mean whether it, Pompeii was actually, the, the damage was reconstructed. Sometimes it's visible as reconstruction because they put in layers of tiles to show what's reconstructed from the, the, the damaged core of a building, for example. In other places, it's not quite so clear what's original and what's reconstructed. That's a recurring problem with Pompeii, which is sort of falling down and being rebuilt all the time. But with um, actually somewhere like the sites in Palmyra, there's a real question of, of, first of all, whether reconstruction should take place at all. I think in aesthetic terms um, the, and, and sort of historical and heritage terms, that the general consensus in, in Western academia is that you don't reconstruct things 
to try and make them look like they were before. Uh, but perhaps you make and you know, Coventry Cathedral is a famous example of this. You try, you perhaps use the the shell of what's been damaged to convey a message about the the nature and the reason for the damage, and um, perhaps to convey lessons about not engaging in wars that do that kind of damage in in future. If you're a teacher and you'd like our help with talking about this topic in the classroom, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash teachers for more information. Well, I was going to bring up the example of Notre Dame as well, because some of the very early things that I've seen about the the reconstruction of the the spire of the cathedral Mm. is that it's not going to be just a recreation of what it was. It might Mm. be some sort of modern example. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really difficult question. And um, the... In the Second World War context, there was largely an an assumption that if it was an important enough site, and the the monastery of of, um, the Abbey of Monte Cassino is an example, and it's destroyed, then it's rebuilt basically to look pretty much the way it was before. Monte Cassino was rebuilt in that way after it was bombed by the Allies in in, uh, um, 1944. Uh, But now I think people are much more cautious about that kind of of rushing in to make decisions about reconstruction and rebuilding and and yes with with Notre Dame there was you know real people were almost while the fires were still burning people were talking about you know we've got to rush in and rebuild this and we've got to do it this way or that way um i think it's actually a good idea to step back a little bit and take some time to reflect on whether reconstruction is a good idea and what form it should take. Are we better at doing that now than we were, say, after the Second World War, which is a a period that you're familiar with too? Well, I wouldn't say we were better at it. I think we we just have have different attitudes to what constitutes heritage and how we treat it. And, you know, I mean, I I was, I think just attitudes change over time. and you know, I think perhaps we 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 explain a we we explore a wider range of, of of issues and problems. And now that the treatment of heritage has become much more of a ma- mainstream academic discipline, for example, a lot of these issues are teased out by us as academics uh, in a way that they weren't particularly in in the late forties and nineteen fifties. But I don't think that makes us better in any way. I keep t- warning my children that you know they, they they mustn't think of themselves as as inherently superior to uh, people of the the nineteen sixties and nineteen seventies because you know they've got um, more uh, uh, moral racial outlooks or whatever. So yeah, we we're different. But in twenty years' time, people will probably look at our attitudes as archaic and. This conversation is making me realise how complicated your role could be. And even the title of your book, Bombing Pompeii, someone might look at that and think, well, what do they mean bombing Pompeii? Pompeii was you know, the victim of a huge mm. volcanic explosion. And it is, it, it's, it's that thing, isn't it, about layers of mm. damage constructed over time and where do you reconstruct or where do you leave things mm. as they are? You must be thinking about these difficulties all the time. Mm. Oh yeah, absolutely. And you know, Pompeii and Herculaneum, in particular, are, are key examples of that. They've um, the, the the level of reconstruction that's been done and the the different historical phases of that, not just the Second World War, um, is a, a an area of study in its own right. Um, you know, they are taking students around Herculaneum and pointing out the extent to which the the superintendent and director of the site in the 1930s, Amadeo Mayuri, used to reconstruct things uh, to produce little sort of historical vignettes. And actually when you, um, and, and our memory of, of his reconstruction has often vanished, we don't know, unless you go and, and, and pick around in the archives and you can find out that actually, you know, that skeleton wasn't found there. Um, it, with that carbonized wooden bed, it was found somewhere else, but Mayuri put them together. And, and so reconstruction, presentation of, of sites, 
and how fashion and uh, in that changes over time and whether we can actually figure out what's reconstruction and what's original. All of those are, are massive issues in, in the study of heritage and archaeological sites. Huge issues. You mentioned briefly earlier about working with non-governmental organizations, mm-hmm. particularly uh, Blue Shield, which yeah. is the heritage version of Red Cross, I think you said. Well, we, we, we sort of characterize it that way because it, the Red Cross is a fairly familiar idea to, to many people. Uh, and the structure is, is sort of similar because it's an international body connected with a, a, a body of, of international humanitarian law, in this case, the 1954 Hague Convention for the Protection of, of, um, uh, of Cultural Property in the Event of Armed Conflict. Um, but it's also got a series of, of national subcommittees so, which are connected by the international superstructure. So I... I um, I'm a member of the board of UK Blue Shield. I work with colleagues, particularly at Newcastle University. Uh, Professor Peter Stone up there is is the um, the head of of international uh, Blue Shield at the moment, the president. Um, and um, we we do all sorts of things um, to really lobby for for heritage protection. So. Um, one of the things we did when we, we sort of reconstructed the, the UK Blue Shield in um, about nineteen about 2012, rather, um, it sort of fallen into um, abeyance before that time. But we, we lobbied for UK ratification of the 1954 Hague Convention, which for various reasons the UK hadn't ratified that particular convention um, and its later protocols. And, and that was actually something that, we we contributed towards happening that happened back a few years ago and that was one of the factors that led to the creation of the cultural protection unit in the armed forces um we we lobby and provide views on um for example how the the government is um is engaging with the 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 demands of the 54 Hague convention uh, both in terms of protection of UK cultural heritage and in terms of the external stuff that the armed forces do. So that that's all. The Blue Shield has, has formed an important sort of focal point of my my engagement with modern cultural property protection over the, the last few years. Before we finish, can we just maybe shift our focus a little bit and think more locally and think about heritage here in the UK, but also somewhere even very local to us, like South Wales. Mm. For you, what buildings and places are important? What do you define as your local heritage? Oh gosh, that's a, a, a difficult question. Um, some of my local local heritage from from my my childhood when I was growing up has sort of disappeared into gravel quarries. I mentioned the excavation at Grove Priory medieval site that was um, something that was important to me growing up because I was always aware it was there and it was something sort of important and historical in in our neighborhood and local archaeological sites like um, uh, Verulamium St Albans the, the Roman site there um, so there are examples of, of sort of traditional heritage that were important to me when I was growing up, going to London when I was a teenager, and and going to, um, going to, to art galleries and things like that, as well as going to record shops and bookshops and things like you know, go to the National Gallery and stuff. So that was all important. That's sort of traditional stuff. Um, but the it's um, I mean, I wasn't a regular churchgoer, for example, but I might imagine that. Uh, under other circumstances, the you know the local Methodist chapel in the village I grew up in might be um, for many people in the village. It's a focus of of their life, a focus, not a very distinguished building, nineteenth century building, but you know nevertheless it's important um, in their terms. Um, the Scout Hut that I used mm. to to go to when I was a kid on the outskirts of the village is rather ancient damp wooden building was important to me um you know we all have our, our we we may ad- admire and feel a connection with the with traditional heritage around us 
Um, and in South Wales in particular, those are often things like industrial landscapes and industrial sites. Um, uh, we may just feel a connection with our local pub. I mean, the, the, um, you know, that may be the heart of a community. And we hear so much about, you know, villages where the, the sense of, of focus and community is dying because the post office has gone or the pub's gone. I mean, that's cultural property in a broader sense. It may not be historical heritage, but it's important to people. So it's important for us to think about what, what, we would miss in our own community if it was destroyed. What forms the glue that keeps us together? I, I was talking to an RAF officer once about the, that this kind of concept, uh, and he said that his local fish and chip shop was his cultural heritage in a way, that it was sort of the, a focal point for the local community and that he would uh, he did say he wouldn't hesitate to bomb it if he was ordered to do so, but <laughs> um, but nevertheless, that 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 had that level of importance to him. Our schools, you know, all of these kinds of things are examples of cultural property in a broader sense. They don't have to be the fancy historical buildings, but often we we like those and we identify with those as well. Final question: If someone's listening to this and is really getting inspired, mm-hmm. um, how would you encourage? them to get into your line of work what do they need to do if they want to be protecting heritage sites well i i think that the immediate step would be to do exactly the kind of thing that we've been thinking about think you know, think about what constitutes heritage what's important to them look around them look at the stuff that's around them you don't have to live in rome or athens to have examples of heritage and to think about the issues uh, it raises, um, but you know, beyond that, in academic terms, things like archaeology, things like Egyptology, classics, ancient history, museum studies, heritage studies, all of those, and and history in a broader sense, all of those things are provide some sort of insight into to heritage and the history of heritage that that would be valuable in in developing your your life, your career your personal interests in that kind of direction. We're going to have to leave it there. But Nigel, thank you very much indeed. If you'd like to find out more about Dr. Nigel Pollard's work, then visit endangeredsyriaheritage.wordpress.com. To find out more about this podcast and Swansea University's research, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash research. In the next episode, we're joined by Professor Tom Patoka to talk about his research into burn injuries and improving care in conflict environments and poorer parts of the world. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. And thank you again to our guest, Dr. Nigel Pollard. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate and review. I'm Sam Blaxland, and that was Exploring Global Problems from Swansea University.